0: Legenda por You're here today to talk about uh, Camus, The Plague, and um, La Peste, his novel, which has started getting a whole pile of uh, critical attention recently and has been, re- it's been reissued recently by Penguin. Is that right? hmm Yeah. So um, if we could maybe start with some of the basics um, for people who don't know, could we perhaps maybe start with a, sort of an outline of the plot first and maybe talk a little bit about the characters or the core characters?
1: Yes, of course. The plot's straightforward, Patrick. It's an account of a group of individuals in the Algerian city of Oran. Sometime in the 1940s, a specific year is not given by the narrator. And it traces the story of this group, the way they meet, and the effort they undertake to resist um, a plague that settles on the city of Oran. And it's told from different perspectives. The narrator, who turns out to be the protagonist, he's the doctor by the name of Khia, uses various documents, including the notes being taken by one of his colleagues. Uh, They create sanitation teams. And so one of his colleagues on the sanitation team has left notes. There's a journalist by the name of Hanber, whose account is also incorporated into the narrative. And, and so the narrator uh, uses these accounts as well as his own account in order to tell this story of what he calls ordinary heroism. And um, it is um, to a degree modeled on the account that Thucydides gives in his history of the Peloponnesian Wars. Um, among the books that Camus was reading during the occupation as he was taking notes for the writing of the plague, uh, was Thucydides. And it's remarkable the ways in which he incorporates not just the chronological stages employed by Thucydides um, in his account of the plague that sweeps through Athens in 434-29 BCE, um, but also he adopts the very tone of uh, Thucydides. The tone is um hippocratic it is diagnostic it is neutral it is in some way objective
0: so that, okay thank you that's 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 fantastic it's interesting right i mean mary beard uh the classicist the british classicist right. um who i'm sure you're aware of who's well she's basically a rock star over here um she's would, amazing yeah she she recently wrote a brief piece on uh Oh not so much Camus, but on, on the idea of the uh, the literary pandemic, I suppose, and her point she said was that uh, all literature begins with uh, infection now. I think she was referring specifically to the Iliad, but mm-hmm. um, I mean you mentioned Thucydides and the uh, the Peloponnesian War uh, so I'm wondering in, in, in what sense could you maybe sort of fill out that account a bit in in what sense uh, is, is, is the plague consonant with the great sort of literary pandemics? And in what sense is it perhaps a deviation? Uh, you know, I'm thinking here of like you know maybe Thomas Mann or Gabriel Garcia Marquez and so forth.
1: Yes, of course,
0: Camus prodded
1: himself on his on his love for things Greek, ancient Greek, ancient Greece, and and so he does turn to Thucydides. It's almost a reflex on his part. What's interesting, since you raise the question of the Iliad, is he doesn't turn to 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 to, to Homer. Um, And of course, the account on the beach outside of Troy, um, that is the the setting for the first book of the Iliad, as the Achaean army is being um, decimated by this plague sent by the gods. Um, is kind of interesting. I think why he turns to Thucydides and not to Homer is that he doesn't want this to be a lyrical or a poetic account. He wants it to be as dry, as diagnostic um, um, as possible. And at a certain point, the narrator explains, as Thucydides does in his account of the plague, of the way in which he's going to approach it. And here, Camus is channeling Thucydides, Patrick, whereas Camus did not want his narrator, Chieh, to be seen or heard by the reader as channeling Homer. There's nothing epic about this struggle.
0: Right, right. So uh, I I, I thought that makes sense. And of course, if he's in the tradition of the Greek Greek tragedy, I guess is also uh, in evidence in uh, Camus' La Peste because... Or the plague, because and I think this is probably a theme germane to your own work. But uh, I mean, what's the cardinal sin in sort of Greek tragedy? It's the it's hubris, right the transgression yes. the transgression of limits. And in some sense, the good and the the resilience and the courage and all of the virtues that the, the, the all the protagonists in the plague do is it's all quite modest. It's, without, you know, this is not sort of grandiose. They, they try to do good in very small, incremental ways where possible.
1: Exactly. They do do that. Before we talk about Camus' understanding of the good, this notion of the tragic in Camus, um, it's very much there. And I think here, too, he shares a good deal with Thucydides in the sense that the tragic in the history of the Peloponnesian Wars is that... There's something intrinsic for Thucydides to human nature that will lead an individual, for example, Alcibiades, to fall, or will lead a city, Athens, to fall as well. It is this mixture of blindness and hubris that we see in those accounts of Athens rise and the very reasons for a success are also the reasons for its ultimate defeat at the hands of Sparta Likewise with Alcibiades and his own career But that's not the only aspect. I think of the tragic in Thucydides There's also the tragic in the sense that at the end of the day We'll fail we will fall um, that there is no lasting solution. There is no lasting resolution or answer. And this is the point that I believe Camus was trying to underscore in The Plague. Um, if you go to the very conclusion of the, of, of the novel, Rye is reflecting on what this experience has meant. This is when, it's at this point that The plague has lifted, that people are, as we are now saying, restarting their economies, restarting their society. And his only thought is that the plague abides, that it is a temporary victory. There will be other plagues. And this is profoundly Thucydidean. This is profoundly tragic in the ancient Greek sense. And that's what. I find most important in uh, the tragic nature of both Camus' thought and Thucydides' thought. And I must, you know, full, disclo- full disclosure, I'm neither a classicist nor a philosopher, I'm um, a modern French historian. But nevertheless, I think a case can be made for this.
0: Right. That's, brilliant at the background. I'm wondering, would it be worth, do you think would it be worth talking a little bit about the more sort of, uh, some of the more practical issues that were impinging imping, themselves upon Camus at the time? I mean, it would be I think telling if we could, if you could maybe sort of recount what was the, you know, what was the genesis of the book for Camus? Uh, what was the time he was writing? What was the context? Where was he writing? When was he writing?
1: Yes, of course he began taking notes for the plague in the 1940s. He had completed by 1942 when he finds himself in France. We need to keep in mind that he is French-Algerian. His his native country is, as he always emphasized, Algeria, not France. And by 1942, he's a 30-something who had just completed Uh, the novel and the essay that will give him critical success, um, namely The Stranger and the Myth of Sisyphus. They're published under the occupation by Gallimard, France's most prestigious publishing house. And they win widespread admiration, um, including from Jean-Paul Sartre. And Camus was in um, Oran, as a matter of fact, uh, which was where his... Uh, wife's family lived. They were living in another apartment owned by his in-laws because he didn't have a job. The newspaper for which he had been working had been shut down by the authorities and he was at that time tutoring Jewish children in Iran who could no longer go to the public school because of the anti-semitic legislation that had been passed by Vichy two years before. He has to give that up though in the summer of 1940, uh, the summer of 1942, because he has a new occurrence of his tuberculosis. He discovered he had tuberculosis when he was still at Lycée. And in 1942, his doctor discovered that it had moved from one lung to the other lung as well. And he is strongly urged by his doctor to go to France to take a cure. And so he leaves for Southern France, in the summer of '42, and he rents a room in a farmhouse in a hamlet just outside of the town Chambon-sur-Lignon in southeastern France, which is in the Cevennes, uh, which is a mountain range in that area. In November '42, while he's living in um, Le Panellier, the hamlet by Chambon, the Allies invade North Africa. And as a consequence, the Germans, which until then had occupied only the northern half of France, invested the rest of the country in order to protect the Mediterranean flank. And at that point, as he writes in his journal, Camus feels trapped like a rat. He cannot return to Algeria. And it's at at that very same time that he begins taking notes for his second cycle Um, of works, a cycle that he would baptize the cycle of revolt. The first cycle that comprehends the stranger, the myth of Sisyphus, and the play Caligula was called the cycle of the absurd. And so he begins taking notes, and he reads Thucydides, he reads Daniel Defoe, he's reading Michel de Montaigne's essays, and of course, Montaigne himself had to deal with a plague in Bordeaux when he was the mayor in 1585. And so he has these sources, and perhaps even more important than having um, recourse to these sources, he has recourse to his experience. By the end of 1942, Patrick, he realizes that as he writes in his journal once again, absurdity teaches nothing he had to move beyond the absurd and that first cycle. And it's at that very same moment that he begins the writing of the plague that he himself enters the resistance. He eventually becomes editor of one of the most important clandestine resistance papers, Combat, Combat. and in 44, with the liberation of Paris, he emerges as the poster child um, he was very handsome. Um, he likened himself to Humphrey Bogart, uh, the poster child of the French resistance, as well as French existentialism. So that's the immediate background.
0: So that, that does, well, there's a lot there. So firstly, that strikes yeah. me, is it's, this uh, no, that's, it's, it's wonderful. Thank you, Rob. It strikes me then that there's something very personal going on, first and foremost, in, ter- let me, in terms of how I respond to what you say, because he's got uh, tuberculosis. And of course, in the novel, the way the the plague affects the primary symptoms of the way it affects the denizens of Oran is pulmonary. It's a pulmonary uh, uh, infection.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, that's very perceptive. That's And he himself, ever since his late teens feels as if, and rightly so, he is waiting for the other shoe to drop. He's living as if he doesn't know when it's going to end. Um, His, 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 He's on borrowed TV, time, exactly. On borrowed time. That was the phrase I was looking for. Exactly, and um, and that sentiment, of course, you know, permeates not just, for example, the myth of Sisyphus, but it's there in the Rebel as well as in um, the Plague as well. You're quite right in that.
0: So the other point that I wanted to respond to you about uh, about your your characterization of the uh, the genesis and background of uh, the Plague is this move from the initial cycle of novels, uh, so Sisyphus, uh, The Outsider, and um, sorry, what was the Caligula. last one? Caligula, Caligula yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the absurd, you know, and he says the absurd doesn't teach you anything. So in some sense, is uh, the plague is a type of uh, self-criticism in a sense, or a, a form of self-reflection where he's trying to go, okay, well, we have absurdity, now what do we do? Or what is the kind of the moral response to that, and uh, in some sense, it's uh, revolt or it's resistance. Right?
1: Is that fair? That, no, that's that's more than fair. That's spot on. This is exactly what he's doing at this point in his in his life in his career. That what Camus understands by the absurd is not that there's something out there, an entity, something identifiable, and has an independent kind of existence that we can label. That's the absurd. Instead, what Camus understands by the absurd is the convergence of two factors. The first factor is what he, uh, the way he frames it or phrases it in The Outsider, the tender indifference of the world. It simply remains silent. And it remains silent. And this is the second factor, to spout despite our insistence upon meaning we seek meaning we turn to the world but the world doesn't respond it doesn't reply and this is what for Camus, makes for the absurd and one of the reasons why he never identified himself as an existentialist patrick is because To his mind, existentialists were more or less willing, at least at that point. Sartre moves on in 1945 with his his public talk, existentialism as a humanism. But at that point, existentialism, as it was forming, was more or less content with acknowledging the state of affairs, but not in a way responding to it. And it's at this point, especially under the occupation, that Camus understands Response is essential. In fact, it is in the response, the rebellion, the refusal to accept it, and instead the insistence upon resisting, that we find meaning. In The Rebel, he has this... I, I guess it can be dismissed as a glib, as a glib tweaking of Descartes' Cogito Sum. But for Camus, rather than I think, therefore I am... It is, I resist, therefore we are. It's in the act of individual resistance that we turn to the left, we turn to the right, and we discover we're not alone, that this is a collective enterprise. This was his experience with the resistance, that there were countless acts of individuals who from 1940 on said, no. I will not accept this absurd situation. And they begin to respond in various ways. He joins this resistance, this saying no in 1942. And in that resistance, he finds meaning. Now, it may not be as meaningful as others would want, but for Camus, this is about as good as it gets. Um in our quest for meaning.
0: That's really interesting. In that little formulation you did there, you know, what I revolt, therefore we are. Is that correct? Yeah? Or, yes. Yeah. There is a kind of a repudiation of uh, Descartes. There, I think you know. It's, it's oh, the, absolutely. Yeah, the meaning is found in the we rather than the I, which is yeah, mm-hmm. the, the, the direct opposite of Descartes. That that question that I want to ask you now, in response to that, is, and I'm going to try out my interpretation of it. Is you know, Camus' The Plague is very famously um, an allegory, or, or it's, it's seen as it taken as an allegory of um, fascist occupation, or Nazi occupation and collaboration, and all of these issues. I wonder, well, firstly, do you think that is the case? My my thinking is that in some way it's probably more of an indirect allegory, in that it's more in terms of perhaps the atmosphere of the novel. That, it's, that, that, that we get the allegory rather than, you know, that the plague represents fascism per se, which was a, which, which I think, if you correct me if I'm wrong, that was de Beauvoir's critique of, uh, of Camus. That was kind of a, the play was kind of an ahistorical view of fascism. Does that make mm-hmm.
1: sense? It does make sense. And um, he was, you know, he was hammered on this by a number of critics, not just uh, de Beauvoir after the war, but also by Roland Barthes. Uh, who wrote a famous critique of the plague, in which, a bit like Beauvoir, but not quite like Beauvoir, Bart suggested that Camus was making a category mistake of sorts, namely that he was associating what the French at the time called la, la peste brune, the brown plague, namely the Nazis, which was an all too human plague, with something that wasn't at all human, namely something that was and Camus, in his response, told Bart, and this was an exchange, I think, in Les Temps Modernes, uh, the, uh the monthly uh, review of Sartre and Beauvoir, and uh, Camus explained that it was, in fact, you used the word allegory. This, too, is Camus' word. He says it is an allegory. It refers not just to the experience of France under the Nazi occupation, but it refers to other forms of occupation or the shadow of such occupations. And after the war, what's on his mind is not so much the experience under the Nazis, but the coming experience under communism. He was very much on the left. In fact, a bit like Simone Vey, he was an anarcho-syndicalist. He was far more sympathetic to the anarchists than he was to traditional socialists. And he was appalled by the communists in France and elsewhere. Uh, He belonged to the Communist Party in Algeria for two years in the mid-1930s and then was kicked out because he couldn't (laughs) toe the line. And, And so he's thinking not just of the form of totalitarianism embodied by the Nazis, but also the form of a totalitarianism embodied by post-war communism. But he also sees it in psychological terms, as you've suggested, as well as in philosophical terms. And this is where I think the notion of the allegory is most important. It is what takes Place in Oran takes place in all of our lives. Right now, the world, or at least those who have the luxury of thinking about it, Patrick, most of us don't. And Camus would be thinking about them right now those who are unemployed, those who are trying to keep a roof over their heads and keep their families healthy. But for those of us who can spend a moment and think about this um, philosophically and psychologically, most definitely. Camus was thinking in these terms too that at the end of the day there has to be a human response to this this sense of occupation this void this this, this 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 refusal of the world to give us meaning we have to carve it out ourselves and he sees this in collective action just as collective action is is the answer to Socioeconomic ills. It's also the answer to, I guess, we could call psycho-philosophical ills. Now, having said that, not only am I not a philosopher, but neither was Camus. Uh, he was very clear about this. He wrote two philosophical essays: "The Myth of Sisyphus" and then "The Rebel," which was published in 1952. And not he bad. Majored, those. <laughs> no, not bad. And he majored in philosophy at the University of Algiers. But his work was on Neoplatonism. platonism In fact, it was mostly on Augustine and his confessions. And he didn't have Greek. He didn't have Latin. And as Sartre rightly remarked, Camus was something of a dabbler when it came to philosophy. And so um, these are all things that we need to keep in mind when we think about these works.
0: That's interesting. That sort of sense of collective resistance. That's one of the things that struck me in the novel, Uh, just before I go on to sort of the list of questions I want to ask you so I could probably talk about this all night but there's a very particular moment in the novel where you have uh, I think it's uh, it's um, it's Rue and uh, it's I think Panelou is there it's the moment I'm referring to Rob is when when the the child uh, dies and uh, it's uh, so it's 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 Rambert there and is Tarou there no, it's 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 Panlu, and
1: it's um, after they after they um, undertake that experiment with that new cure on the child, um, who the son of um, the um, the uh, local magistrate Oton and it fails, and the child, after hideous hideous tortured pain, dies. The the. the, the the Catholic priest, Panelou tries to explain it and Rieu refuses right. these explanations.
0: Yes, yes. And they have a kind of a vigil. Uh, so the child, uh, they try out the new serum and the uh, the child rallies and he falls back and he rallies and uh, right. uh, ultimately he, he passes away. And uh, in some sense, it's it's quite beautiful because Rieu and uh, Panelu, they they have a kind of a moment of solidarity which kind of transcends their, you know, reuse secular humanism and the priest Catholicism, and uh, then they kind of revert back to their, uh, I'll say, gentle antagonism, I suppose.
1: Yes, it's true. And it's, in, in a way, what Camus is basically, it's a reprise of this lifelong debate he was having, both with himself, about the question of God, the question of faith, as well as with those Catholic priests to whom he was actually quite close, beginning in the resistance. Um, there are commentators who believe that Father Panelu is married on Father Brukbega, who was a Dominican priest in the resistance. And it may well have been that Camus was having similar discussions with Panelu. Um, But there's also an echo of Dostoevsky. Mm. Uh, and uh, from from the brothers Karamazov and the Grand Inquisitor, which also deeply impressed Camus. In fact, Dostoevsky was always one of his touchstones, and um, along with Kafka, I should add, and, and, and Nietzsche. And, um, and basically what, what he is telling Panelou is, I refuse, as Ivan Karamazov tells his brother Alyosha, I refuse to buy this ticket. I'm returning the ticket to this world made by this God. He might well exist, but I want no part of it. And this is the very argument being made by here. Um, in that give and take between him and Panalu. And yeah, I, I think, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: No, no. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's that's great. I just thought it was a it was an interesting, because it's a, it's not a judgmental book, or he's not judgmental of the characters, you know. I mean, he's he's, he's quietly critical of the Panalu character, but in some sense, you know, while they're caring, in the act of caring for this child, they do have a kind of a... And sat's solidarity, I guess, for want of a better word, which I thought was quite... That's where the revolt is, I guess. That's what he's trying to pinpoint.
1: Exactly. Yes. Um, and there's, there's a dynamic, uh, both in Camus' life as well as in this novel, um, between solidarity and solitude. These are, in a way, the two poles of our existence. Um, so consider the fact that, as you rightly note there is, there are these moments of solidarity between Panelou and Rieu. And it's not just while they um, are holding this vigil together over that young boy, um, but it's also the fact that Panlu joins the sanitation team and he's there helping every day with the task at hand. Remember early on in the novel, Rieu more or less boils down his ethic to we need to do our work. We need to do the job to which we're assigned. And he understands this, and Panelu understands this, and the job at that moment is to combat the plague. And so there are these moments of solidarity, but there are also moments of solitude. Think, for example, about the way in which Panelu dies. He dies alone with his with his face towards the wall, and his back turned to, to Tahu and Achille uh, when they enter his room. And you have, um, uh, in case of Pamela, you have him facing away from his, from his friends, alone holding the cross and facing the wall. And in a similar fashion, at the end of the novel, Achille is alone as well. His wife has died. She has gone to France to take a cure just as Camus has. Camus survived. His wife, his fictional wife in the novel, doesn't. And so he's effectively alone as well. And so he ends the novel alone Um, after this sustained exercise in solidarity with the rest of the sanitation team. They go their separate ways. And this is something that Camus himself was sort of, ricocheting between his entire life, these moments of solitude and moments of solidarity.
0: Now, one of the other things I'd like to ask you about, well, when I reread it recently, one of the things that struck me, I read it when I was a, you know, an undergraduate student and, you know, profoundly impressed by the, the, it. And it, was, it was my favorite of Camus books. And I, I didn't notice it at the time, which probably tells you something about me at that when I was 19 or 20. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I reread it, I thought, there's not a lot of women in this, you know. There's not a lot of women now. This is something I want to uh, see what you think about because in, in 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 your autobiographies, one of the points that you say, well, we have, well, we've we've got a couple of women in this. We've got Rio's wife, who's at who's pretty much quickly shipped off to the sanatorium at the start. Rather exactly. <laughs> she's dispatched with right, so the the lads can get on with uh, starting out the plague. Mm-hmm. But the other character is uh, Rio's mother, and she mm-hmm. is characterized. As, a sort of, as mute, as, as, as silent. Now, when you write about this in your biographies, you say that this is a lot more uh, significant. You know, there's a lot more underlying this than uh, meets the eye. So I was wondering, perhaps, could you speak to that, uh, Rob? Yeah.
1: One of the layers, I think, um, and one of the superficial layers is the fact that Chia's uh, mother is modeled on Camus' mother, who, in fact, was mostly mute. Um, She had a vocabulary of about 400 words. And um, he returns to this silence time and again in his novels, in his journal, in his essays, especially the lyrical essays that he wrote in the 1930s. And finally, and most heartbreakingly, in the unfinished novel, The First Man, the one he was writing when he died in the car crash in January of 1960. He is consumed by by his mother's silence, by her inability to read the works that he's written. And it's not just the mother's silence. In The First Man, which is profoundly autobiographical, he writes about the silence of his home growing up. Uh, his grandmother was illiterate, as was his mother. Um, and the uncle who lived um, in the same household, uh, they were all illiterate. Um, the uncle was also mute and had a vocabulary of about a hundred words. And so time again, in The First Man, um, the the protagonist, uh, Jacques Comrie, speaks about the silence. And so this... Silence, which was all too real, all too palpable, all too, in a way, physical for Camus, also takes on, and I guess this is the deeper level, Patrick, takes on a philosophical significance. In a way, this, the silence of his household, of his immediate family, in some way channels or distills the silence of the cosmos, the silence of the world. His 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 quest for love, his quest for meaning is never met in that home. Just as, as a philosophical being, it's never met when we look to the skies and ask for a reason or ask for a response. And so this is at play with uh with Hria. You're right. The wife is packed off, which is very convenient and the mother is reduced to silence. But this may well be what love is at the end of the day. It doesn't speak, but yet it's there. This is something that Camus insists upon in the first man. He knows his mother loves him, but it is a love that in some way either beggars or is simply too great for language. Um, so this is very much a play in his life, his effort to interpret the silence. And in some in some really odd ways, he, and more practical ways, he does sound um serve as an interpreter. For example, um in the first man, he talks about going to the cinema with his grandmother who couldn't read. and everything was in subtitles because they were silent movies. Um, that they would sometimes see, and so she would ask Camus to read to him what was being said on the screen. And he had to utter the words, and it also it always placed him in an awkward position because others sitting in the audience would hush him. And so while he was trying to communicate to his huh. grandmother, he's being prevented by others. And anyway, that's it's not a here nor there. But oh, it's um, interesting. yes, violence is is a great preoccupation for Camus.
0: What is it? What is it in the silence? Is it like is there a kind of a, a, a dignity, or the silence? You know, in the same way that the plague it reveals what's important and what's of value, or is it where we can begin to you know get you know get rid of all the sort of the idle talk and chatter and sort of. Uh, Uh, needless, trivial, banal sounds that sort of fill up moderate life. It's all of that, but it's also more. I mean, silence, of course,
1: is is charged with possible meanings, not just one meaning. For Camus, silence can mean resignation, submission, that of workers who um, are forced to labor long hours for inadequate wages, people who live in a state of precarity from one day to the next and do not have the words to give voice to the injustices and inequities that they confront on a daily basis. And this is one of the reasons why he was so taken by the thought of Simone Weil when he discovers her works after the the Second World War. But silence can also be the mark of resistance as it was quite often in France. One of the great um, clandestine works written during the resistance was Vercors, The Silence of the Sea, in which a German officer is barracked with a French, with an uncle and his niece on a farm. And their response to the German officer, who's very cultured, very civilized, and very talkative, is silence. They will not Talk with him. And Verkort is proposing this as an answer. This is one way in which we can resist by refusing to engage our occupiers. Um, And so it can be a mark of resistance. So there can be a dignity, a nobility, one that, for example, this German officer recognizes by the end of this novella. But what's most important, I think, for my understanding of Camus Patrick is that, be it submission, be it resistance, silence is the signal for somebody who can speak, the writer, for example, to give those without voices their voices. Camus underscores this point in his Nobel Prize address in 1957 in in, in Stockholm, uh, where he it's, 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 he gave a conference following the speech, as a matter of fact, and it's called The Artist in His Time. And he talks about the artist has two obligations both to art as well as using that art to those in need, those who cannot speak. And time and again, he refused, he, he refers to these individuals as les muets, the speechless ones, the mute ones.
0: Within that, then, I guess, again, the acted. Of- the, the urge to speak, to say, to give voice to the voiceless, there's a, I guess there's, a, there's something kind of almost biblical about that because there's also the sense that one can uh, attribute blame, right? And, uh, you know, blame and accusation, recrimination, you know, this is happening at the time of Camus alive. You know, this is the, the time of who's collaborating, who is not collaborating, right? So do you mm-hmm. think all of that is part of the background to this or is underlying this notion of silence, I think it is. You know,
1: what's interesting about judgment, um, uh, which is one of the issues you've just raised, Precisely. Um, And he, with the liberation of France, or the liberation of Paris in 1944, Camus, who was always opposed to the death penalty, broke with that right after the war. That's right. And yeah. made the case that for collaborators, the death penalty was necessary. And for a number of reasons, and it would take too long to describe them, he reconsiders this position and realizes he was wrong. And there's a famous exchange between Camus and the French novelist and uh, uh, and profound Catholic, Francois Mauriac, who was also deeply conservative. They were so unlike in so many ways, but Mauriac and Camus did share one thing. They were both in the resistance. And Moriac argued that this was a time for forgiveness after the war. Because what was taking place in France after the liberation of Paris and other cities were these hideous scenes of women being shaved and bald because they were um, deemed horizontal collaborators having slept with Nazis or with German soldiers. And there were countless instances of popular justice of those who had been deemed collaborators being shot or hanged um, by local groups of resistance fighters, many of whom joined the resistance at the 11th hour. And Camus realizes that Mauriac had a point, um, that the resistance or those who resisted um, had become in a way as bad as those they were now punishing. And this is so important, Patrick, for um, an understanding of Camus. And this is, this is the essential thesis to the rebel, as well as to the plague, is the distinction he makes between revolt on the one hand and revolution on the other. When you resist, when you rebel, you remain cognizant of the humanity of those against whom you're rebelling. Revolutionaries overlook Shared humanity, and they're willing to treat those that they resist and then perhaps defeat, just as they had been treated by their oppressors when the oppressors were in power. Both sides refuse to recognize what Simone Veil, in her, in her essay on the Iliad, the poem of force, talks about, namely, force. We're all subject to it, and. Camus recognizes this after the war and he admits to Mauriac in an exchange, you were right and I was wrong. And he returns to his uh, anti-death penalty stance. And he basically washes his hands of the uh, purge that followed the country's liberation. And so he Learns that um, you know, it, how difficult it is at times like these to render judgment, um, and at times how important it is perhaps to maintain a kind of silence before speaking, before rendering such a judgment.
0: And this is, of course, this feeds directly into the famous spat he had with uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Right now, uh, one of the things, one of the things I'd like to talk to you about. You know, when you're an undergraduate, or the sort of the way this is thought at undergraduate level is that it's you know, it's uh, it's existentialism, it's about individualism, and you can ultimately it's about self assertion and you know, it's about you know, self creation and self invention, and uh, you know, you have to kind of repudiate existing and prevailing forms of ethics. Now, one of the things in your work that you try to draw out about, particularly with reference to the plague, is the types of ethics that or the type of ethical discourse that Camus is trying to articulate. And there is a kind of an alternative ethics or a kind of a re- an ethics of resistance that emerge in the novel, and they they seem to coalesce around different themes. Now, we've talked about some of them already. We've talked about uh, silence and uh, moderation. But some of the other things you, you talk about are fidelity and uh, attention, I think. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm wondering. Then I, I, I I've got to give you, a, I suppose, what in America say? A softball question. You know, yeah. is, why, is that right? <laughs> Did I get that right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so it's like, uh, is there um why why are there no ethics in uh, in existentialism and in, in the plague, uh, Rob?
1: Why are there no ethics?
0: Yes, that's the softball question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not a softball question. That's no. the curve. It's a curveball question. It's <laughs> a curveball <laughs> question. <laughs> which is just the opposite.
0: Oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah, uh, gosh. You, you should see me talking about cricket. You should see me talking about it even worse. <laughs>
1: yeah. That would require not 15 minutes to explain to me, Patrick, but 15 days at the very least, which well, is the length th- of a cricket match, right? <laughs> I was about to so, say um, yeah. I... I Again, novels are not where one tells. Instead, it's where one shows. And first and foremost, Camus is a novelist. He's not a philosopher. He's not um, um, making an argument. He's making a story. And even the story that he makes with the plague, to my mind, tends to be overly didactic. At times, he sins against that precept about showing and telling, and he does tell us. At times, Kriye and tattoo are basically lecturing the reader um, about what is and isn't right, how one goes about one's job, how one doesn't go about it. Um, there is an ethics there. It's just not... Uh, perhaps as either clear or certainly for professional philosophers, coherent enough to to be recognized as a philosophical case for a certain ethic. And this is one of the reasons why Camus always insisted that the myth of Sisyphus and the rebel were not works of philosophy. Instead, they were... on uh, Les essais philosophiques. They were philosophical essays, and here once again we need to think of Montaigne, one of his one of his guiding lights. Um, that an essay, by definition, is a trial. It's a groping towards, and uh, this is what he sees himself doing in these essays, and of course what he's doing in his novels as well. Um, and if there is a system to be taken from these works, the essays and the novels, great but i don't think that's what Camus saw himself or 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 saw himself as doing
0: i think that's absolutely right if we think of like say someone like plato you know i mean the philosophers you know as my my literary friends always tell me the trouble with philosophers and literature we come along with our big sort of arguments and go oh, this is this is an argument about like you know justice this is an argument about truth and so on like that but i mean even plato was more nuanced than that like you know the arguments are in there but they're also Uh, couched and furnished in sort of literary representation and play and um, symbol and allegory and all the rest of it. Yeah. And that's what makes it richer, I would say. And that's why, you know, Camus is more fascinating because he works at the intersection of literature and philosophy and history. No, I
1: I, I agree. And, you know, one of uh, Camus' great fans, Iris Murdoch, you see somebody who, in fact, embodies those at times competing, you know, imperatives between being a philosopher and being a novelist. And those novels that are most successful in, in Murdoch's Oeuvre are those that are truly novelistic. But at other times, she is making a philosophical argument. And I think the novels, in those cases, suffer as a consequence So um, absolutely, there are two different ways of conceiving the world and our role in the world.
0: And as well, in addition to that, Rob, you know, yes, certainly there are passages in The Plague that are quite didactic. You know, they're very... There's a sense of the moralizer in it, although you make Mm -hmm. a distinction about that, which we could talk about. But also, well, what I found when I reread it was, I mean, some of it is beautifully written. I mean, you said at the outset that... You know, it's not lyrical, it's not the epic, but it's, there's a very lyrical and poetic quality to the prose, at least, would you say?
1: At, at certain parts, he allows himself to be lyrical. For example, there is the scene in which Tahu and Hrya, uh they go back to Chiyah's apartment, and then Chiyah says, I, I believe it's Chiyah who says, let's take time off for friendship, and they go for a prohibited swim in the sea. And that moment is just so ravishing, Patrick. But this is where Camus is sort of allowing himself to be the younger Camus, the lyrical Camus. And this comes out again, for example, in The First Man. Um, He could be extraordinarily lyrical, but I find that those passages that are lyrical in the plague are so effective, in part because they're fairly rare in the plague, um, unlike The First Man, unlike um, um, The Fall, um, unlike a number of his short stories. The, the Outsider is a case apart.
0: Okay. So, uh, one of the other questions, and uh, this is slightly uh, to the side, but uh, in your books about uh, Camus, and I'm going to try and uh, sort of Bring things to a close now. Over the next few few questions, but one thing, and I think it would be interesting for British uh, listeners as well, is that uh, on a number of occasions in your biographies of Camus, you 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 draw uh, an analogy with Orwell, right? Or you say that they have a, a similar spirit, and uh, I can I can I can understand why. I mean, you know, Orwell, you know, the great leftist who's critical of the left. You know, uh, who's critical of totalitarianism is—is—is—is uh, is, 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 is that simply it, or do you think there's more to it? Uh, do you see, do you see other parallels between Orwell and Camus?
1: I think that there's also, and I think I make mention of this in my in my the Harvard book on um, 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 on Camus, is their love of nature, their no. love of the everyday, their attachment to the physical world. Um, it doesn't sound right when you say it about Orwell, but there was something of the sensualist to Orwell. Oh, for sure. Um, and his essay on the common toad, for example, mm. um, is gorgeous. Mm. And this is something that... shooting an elephant, Amu, uh, probably. Or shooting an elephant, exactly. You know, these were just Burmese days. Yeah, great, great, um, great stuff, um, yeah. It's amazing stuff. And this is also deeply Camusian. Um, uh this attachment to the world and and there's also their the fact that the two of them were journalists before they became writers and i think that as journalists they learned their writing or at least uh the writing of camus that we see in the outsider and that we see in the plague um is that that's it's it's been the lyricism has been domesticated by the need to communicate as quickly and as directly as possible. Yeah. Um, and so we see the same absence of lyricism in some of Orwell's pieces like the road to wig and Pair, um, uh that we see in um, uh, the works of Camille that we've been talking about. Um, but I think it's really the spirit of independence. Yeah.
0: It's probably a um, sense of, are- a- sorry, Rob. Yeah. Probably a sense of absurdity as well. I mean, Orwell was shot in the neck, I think, you know, so that's that's going to give you a and sense he, of con- and, contingency and, and, of life. Yeah. And,
1: and, and, right. And he was um, oh, um oh. as Camus was, of course. And they both were chain smokers. <laughs> uh, I, mean, you can, you, I mean, you can, I think Camus was a much better dancer than Orwell. <laughs> yeah. So.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. And um, uh, well, yeah, they're definitely, um, there's definitely a P- comparative PhD in there for a, enterprise and grad students. Absolutely. Student. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the, the, so I've got two questions left that I'd like to ask you. Uh, one of the things that you make, one of the part of distinctions that you make in your work when you're describing Camus, you say, there's a distinction between uh, Camus being a moralizer and a moralist, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, with that in mind, that leads me on to the last question, you know, what would Camus, do you think, be telling us now in this time of pandemic, you know, this time of uh, pox and plague, right? As a, as a moralist, not a moralizer, what do you think he would be telling uh, us right now? Well, the distinction
1: between moralizer and moralist is not mine. It was Tony Jutz, ah. um, um, who wrote a striking essay on Camus, um, in which he makes this very distinction. And what, what Jutt meant was that a moralizer is somebody... Well, like me, I'm always wagging my finger at my, at my kids or at my students telling them that they should be doing this and not doing that, right? Somebody who hands out lessons left and right to others, um, but doesn't really apply them to themselves. Um, a moralist is somebody who makes not just others uneasy, like the biblical prophets, um, but also makes themselves uneasy. Um, according to Jutt. You can think about it in terms of being scrupulous. I believe that the word comes from the Latin where you have a, a pebble lodged between two of your toes, and it makes walking a bit painful. You're aware that you're trying to walk and you can't quite do it. There's something bothering you. And um, this is where we get the notion of scrupulous, that we know we should be doing something, but something is wrong with us, and it prevents us from doing it smoothly. And this is what Judd understands by a moralist. Camus was always uneasy with himself. He was never at home with himself. He often denied that he was a guide, that he was as confused, as lost as those who increasingly in the 1950s sought him out for advice or guidance. That's what makes him a moralist and not a moralizer. Though he was often a moralizer, um, there's no clear distinction um, 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 in his life at times. Now, as a moralist and not as a moralizer, what would Camus have to say to us today? I, I have no great insights i wish i were in a position to channel Camus right now i often ask myself i this is a question i've asked myself you know over the course of decades what would Camus do when i find myself in certain situations so
0: you would smoke a lot Um, (laughs) jim
1: well i quit about 20 years ago so that's no longer an option for me um um, uh, and I'm a terrible dancer and I don't look like Humphrey Bogart. Um, and th- the problem, Patrick, is, is that I never really know what he would do. Instead, in terms of what we're confronting today, what he would tell us is what Rieux tells, um, either himself or his, or his fellow sanitation team workers, in Iran during the plague, namely that we have to ascertain the facts and then speak them and act upon them without fear of political authorities who may disagree. That we have to, as Hayyud does time and again, and it's such a pat phrase nowadays, but it becomes less pat when you actually find yourself in such situations. Namely, we have to speak truth to power. This is what Camus saw himself doing time and again. Um, And he was mostly right in doing this. And at times where he could no longer speak truth because he was being... Uh, willfully misunderstood by all sides, for example, during the uh, war for independence in Algeria in the 1950s, he retreated into silence. He could no longer speak and make an impact, he thought. And so we, 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 we search out the facts, we act upon those facts, and we insist on speaking those facts and those truths to to others to those in power and representing those facts on the, on the part of those who are powerless. I guess it comes down to that.
0: So from, from now on, it can be said that the plague was the concern of all of us, as one of the quotes from the...
1: E- exactly, or what he tells Khrambert, the journalist who wants to get back to Paris and his girlfriend. And Hanber keeps insisting, my place isn't here, in Iran, And Khayyar replies... Yes, it is.
0: Yes, it is. I think that's a great place to uh, to 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 end. Thank you, Rob. That's fantastic.
1: Well, thank you, Patrick. I really enjoyed it.